Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. In the United States today, we face a range of challenges from low wages, heavy student debt, racial and ethnic marginalization, wars, and looming above it all, environmental catastrophe. Our guest today offers guidance on how we might solve all these problems and more. Michael Zweig is the Emeritus Professor of Economics and founding director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He has a long history of social activism combined with scholarly work. You may have seen his work featured in the New York Times, Democracy Now!, and Bill Moyer's PBS programs. His recent book is titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Michael Zweig, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. I'd like to start by asking you why you wrote this book. I think that uh, it's important for people who are involved in these social movements that are bubbling up in this country uh, to have some place to go to read more deeply about what is behind all these issues that we're dealing with. And how do we really think about what's going on in the environment and in racial justice and in labor issues and in environmental questions? What is driving all of these outrages and injustices and divisions that cause us to come into action? And how do we understand more deeply what is driving all of these things so that we can uh, structure our responses and build our movements appropriately? That's really why I wrote it, because there's all this stuff going on in the country. And uh, I think that people say, well, young people don't read. Uh, anymore. All they do is watch TikTok. I don't think that's true. I think that people do read. If there's something to read and that will be helpful and that is uh, in plain language and not full of jargon. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. And uh, that's why I wrote it. That's the audience for it. And of course, anybody else who's interested in how these movements come about and what's uh, how to understand how our society works, this book is for them. Yes, I had the feeling when I was reading it that it was in some ways a legacy book, that you have had a lifetime of social activism, political engagement, as well as your work in academia and, and wrestling with ideas, and that this was in some way a sharing of what you know and what you think the your analysis of the problem is and your suggestions for the solutions and your ideas on effective social movements that can mobilize to make needed change. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. I don't know about legacy because that's, uh, you know, that's when you die and I'm not ready for that. So I think that it's, it, it is a book that tries to sum up what I do know and what I have learned and try to get uh, that down in a way that people will understand. I've been mm -hmm. spent 50 years in a classroom. I've been in many church basements and union halls and community centers, as well as classrooms, talking about the questions of how our economy works and how the society is put together, and then how do we respond to the injustices that we find around us. So in those uh, years, I've uh, learned some things and had a lot of exchange with people and there's found out what kind of examples work and what kind of arguments make sense to people. And that's what I have uh, tried to put in this book, is that uh, 60 years worth of experience in that aspect of life. Right. I appreciate you doing that. And um, let's talk about this kind of in two segments. One is your analysis of what's at the root of a lot of our problems. And secondly, what you see as some of the solutions given that root cause that you see. Right. Um, so you say in the book, you assert that many of the problems we've got, the ones I mentioned and more, are a direct consequence of unrestrained capitalist economies. Could you explain what your thinking is on that analysis? Well, I think that there's two parts of that. There's the capitalism part, and then there's the unrestrained part. I think that 
in any society, the organization of production is central to everything else in the society. And that's because if you don't produce, people don't survive. And then the society kind of collapses. So production is central to everything. And I think that uh, we have in our society, a capitalist society, and that capitalist society is organized in order to profit the owners of capital and the, and the few at the top of the power structure in the United States or in any capitalist society. So if there's no restraint on that, then there's no limit to what uh, they'll do, uh, the people in authority over the economy, to structure the political system, the culture, the religious beliefs and practices to sustain their power. And I think when we talk about uh, production, uh, we talk about production not just as something for the market, but it's it's a it's a system of actually making things. And that production process is both technical with what's the technology you use and what are the tools and what's the instruments and what's the skill level of the labor force, but it's also intensely social. Uh, there is in the production process people who control it, organize it, make the rules for it. And then there's the people who do the work and who actually make the products and create and deliver the services that uh, a capitalist class is going to uh, structure so that that production process goes forward in their interests. So if you're talking about class in this country, I think it's important not to talk about it in terms of income or wealth. Class is a question of power. And so we've had periods of time in, in uh, this country and in every capitalist society in which the uh, uh, exercise of that power by the capitalists, by the owners, by the, uh, the people who control production has caused so much suffering and so much indignity that people rise against it and people want to put limits on it or get rid of it altogether. And we've experienced those periods in this country. We experienced it in the Great Depression. We experienced it in uh, the New Deal that resulted from that. We experienced it in the outrages of Jim Crow and the uh, way in which the Civil Rights Movement addressed those things. And in those movements, we were able to push back the power of capital. We were able to push back uh, the way in which the uh, controllers of the corporate and business world uh, structured things and organized things so that they would gain and we would lose. Working people would suffer, black people would be marginalized, and they got pushed back on that in successful social movements. But those gains were never fully accepted by the ruling elites of the country. And so we've been experiencing for the last 60 years now, since 19 or 55 years, since 1970, a very systematic attempt on the part of the rulers and the capitalists of this country to take back all those gains, to reverse all those gains. And that's what we're in the middle of now. That's a process that's continuing. Uh, to strip workers of their rights to labor organizing, to strip black people of the rights to vote, to strip women of the rights to control over their own bodies. All those things are going on as an active response to the exercise of power that working people and uh, minorities and black people and women have uh, confronted capital with. And uh, capital is now reaching back to try to uh, reassert their authority reassert their power, and reassert their dominance over workers, over everybody in the society. And that's the battle that we're fighting in, in politics, whether it's in the yeah. question of abortion rights or the question of environment, labor rights, all those things, voting rights, they're all coming out of that same underlying conflict uh, where capital seeks to maximize its own returns for itself at the expense of everybody else and those people who uh, resist that. And that's where we are. Well, I, so societies have organized themselves in different ways throughout the thousands of years. Is there any country that you think is 
well-organized? I mean, you, you specified unrestrained capitalism as the problem. Would you support, say, the Scandinavian countries with the democratic socialist versions of capitalism? If it can survive uh, the power of capital uh, to agree to it and to accept it, sure, that would be great. We're far from that in this country. Bernie Sanders opened the door to that discussion with his discussions of socialism and democratic socialism in particular in his campaigns in 2016 and 2020. Uh, it's not clear that the capitalists would accept that in this country, for example, or that the capitalists in Sweden or in Norway are accepting it today. They're trying to resist it and push it back and experimenting with right-wing politics as that's growing elsewhere in Europe and in the United States. So I think that uh, how much we can extract for our own interests and for the sanity of the planet depends very much on what the capitalists are willing to uh, concede. So, uh, so in reading your book, my sense was your analysis, the problem is unrestrained capitalism and that it, it's very predatory we made good gains in the 60s and 70s with women's rights, with black rights, with uh, you know, civil rights, with the um, labor we had formed in the in the early part of the 20th century and then started to decline. Um, but uh, there's been a pushback by capital to take those back, as you were just saying earlier here in the program. Um, so if if that's the analysis, then What's the solution? Is is it in the building of social movements of workers, particularly to organize and push back against capital? Or where do you see the changes? In, are, are you for more restrained capitalism? Are you for socialism? Or what's your end goal? And then what's your strategies for getting there? Well, as I say at the start of the book, uh, let's talk about what does it mean to progressive, progressive politics or progressive political program. To me, that means anything that uh, alleviates suffering among the mass of people, that's progressive, that's progress. Anything that increases the material circumstances or the organizational power or the intellectual capacity, cultural capacity of working people, that's progress. Anything that reduces those powers and those capacities, that's regression. So if we start from that, that is what I mean by progressive. And uh, how much you can move along those progressive lines depends upon the resistance and the character of resistance that capital puts up. It's just like that. Now we start, again, if we uh, go back to the very first point here about production being central and production being a relationship between late in the capitalist society between labor and capital if you're going to restrain capital if you're going to restrain the power of the capitalist class in this country the main force has to come from the working class which is its counterpoint in the polarity of power in the society the capitalist class has power over production the working class has power in its capacity to produce. And so that's where the, the, the real battle lines are, is between labor and capital. And anything that uh, will divide workers and weaken their capacity to challenge capital is something that has to be resisted. So racism, for example, and white supremacy was invented in this country when we had slavery. Now, everybody knows we had slavery, except maybe some people in Florida. But I think that we can safely say everybody understands that we had slavery in this country. But what's often forgotten is that that slavery was racial slavery. It wasn't everybody that was slaves who were working. It was only black people. It was racialized slavery. And that meant that the joint resistance to English rule in 17th century Virginia of African labor and English labor, which came together to resist English rule, the English responded by enslaving the African population only. And they did that 
to break apart the unity of white and black or African and European labor. And so that was a class attack. That was a, 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 uh, an instrument of class power, ruling class power, to weaken the people who they were ruling and they were controlling and who were rebelling and resisting. So if we talk about bringing working class power to bear, it's not just a question of unions and organization of workers. It's a question of bringing together all the different forces, all the different agencies that challenge capital. And that includes black liberation or, or civil rights. It includes the environmental movement, includes the women's movement. All of those movements, all of those outrages, all of those in, injuries and injustices have their origins in capital in the operation of capitalist uh, accumulation and the making of profit. And so it's not the, the politics of that is it's not just workers at work and in their unions that have to exercise authority. Those workers have to exercise authority broadly across all aspects of society to make sure that it all works on behalf of working people. And that means the working class or workers organizations have to unite with and be part of a broader social movement that includes the civil rights movement, includes the women's movement, it includes the LGBTQ movement, it includes the question of environment, all those things jointly in a united front, if you want, or in solidarity with one another is what is needed to confront the power of capital and to push it back. It seems to me that uh, your analysis is kind of deeply rooted in in Karl Marx in the 19th century, um, and it kind of gave rise to the the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, yeah. and a number of other initiatives for workers uniting and rebelling against capital. And that those experiments didn't work out too well. I mean, the USSR is now Russia, and now we got Putin. Um, so uh, it's it's one thing to have a, a theory about workers uniting against the power of the capitalists, but it's another to see where does where does that lead, and how else do you organize a society successfully so you do limit the suffering for the majority of people? Well, those are all very important issues and questions that you've raised. And certainly uh, Karl Marx and Marxist uh, analysis is an important piece of intellectual history in the United States or in the world. But I will point out that Marx only wrote about capitalism. Marx never wrote about in any serious way what socialism would be like or what actually the rule and power of workers would be like because he didn't have that as his experience. The only experience in the middle of the 19th century was the experience of capitalism. So if we read Marx, we read an analysis of capitalism. And in our world today, capitalism is what's triumphant all over the world. And so if you want to understand what's going on all over the world, it helps to really dig deeply into how capitalism works. And Marx was somebody who had something very important to say about that. That doesn't mean everything Marx said was right. Doesn't mean everything that we need to know Marx already said. So all you have to do is dig more deeply into the 51 volumes of Marx's writings. No. But I think that what Marx was able to understand was something deep about how it is that profit is made and where profit comes from and how that profit arises in a relationship between labor and capital doesn't arise out of the market. It doesn't arise because the capitalists took risks or the capitalists are smarter. It arises, profit arises, out of the relationships of capital with labor. And Marx was able to explain how that works. And I think that that is an important lesson that's worth holding on to. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that followed in socialist society in the 20th century in China, in Russia, in, in Cuba, in all kinds of Vietnam, all around the world, are where we ought to go. I don't believe that. I don't think that's right. But I don't have to think that in order to recognize the significance of Marx in explaining some deep 
issues of how capitalism works. Now, what we're looking at today is a, is a set of problems that Marx really never talked about. He, he didn't talk about women's oppression. He didn't talk about racism and white supremacy, although he was certainly opposed slavery and he wrote, you know, very vigorously against slavery. But, you know, we, we need to really think more deeply about how the society works today in ways that Marx never anticipated. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of the concern comes from the application of some of Marx's theory. And of course, it's been a long time and there's a lot of different people have done thinking and writing and mobilizing since then, but it is landmark uh, insights into the nature of, of capital. Um, the concern among a lot of people is when the analysis rooted in Marx is applied, you end up with the the Soviet Union and then Russia, and then you mentioned Cuba, uh, China, you know, some very repressive regimes. And, and so what do you say to people who say, well, yes, we've got a lot of problems right now, but it would be worse if we became like China was or like the Soviet Union was, or like Russia is now, or Cuba is now. Uh, what's your response to that concern? My response is that we have to do what's appropriate for our conditions in the United States. And that will not be what Stalin did in Russia. That will not be what Mao did in China. It will be what we do here. And that's our responsibility to figure out how we mobilize the resources that we have and the populations that we have and the movements that we have to build a society which is truly democratic, which is truly the representation of the will and needs and desires and aspirations of working people. Uh, we talk in this country about a struggle for democracy, and of course we are in the middle of such a struggle because certainly there are forces, political forces in this country in this election that's coming up that want to turn democracy around. And they're trying to do it state by state around voter suppression and many other uh, dimensions. Well, it's up to us to figure out how we respond to that in a way which is representative of and which reflects the needs and interests of working people and the people who are marginalized in capitalist society. Uh, all of whom have a common interest in pushing back on the power of capital. Now, whether that's a reform movement that has uh, limitations that it wants to put on capital and taxation that it wants to put on very wealthy people, that's one way to do things. Now, if those very wealthy people decide that they're not interested in being taxed like that, and instead they're going to put in jail the people who are trying to uh, do that as uh, subversives, or as communists, or as fascists, or whatever name they want to put on people, well, then we have a fight going on. And how you how that fight gets conducted depends very much on what the ruling class in this country is willing to do. Uh, you know, we have a history of serious repression in this country. You know, when the Black Panther Party was operating in the late 1960s, the FBI and state authorities assassinated them, just shot them down and put him in jail on trumped up charges for 25 years and then let him go with a monetary settlement because, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. Well, we have a country that has a history of violent repression. Now, usually we talk about that history with a little bit of a shame face and say, oh, that's, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. But it did happen. And if the capitalists want to do that again, then we'll see where we go. But there's an old saying in the labor movement, you know, the boss is your best organizer. And what the capitalists do is going to mobilize people in resistance or it's going to mobilize people in thinking that they have allies there. Depends on how it yes, works I mean, out. We've seen a, 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 the boss is a good union organizer. If you look at what's been going on in the country over the past several years, the uh, vibrant resurgence of the labor movement of workers, whether they be at Starbucks or workers in the teachers unions, um, work the nurses, uh, that a, a lot of the workers are saying they're squeezing us too much. They're making us work too hard. We're not getting 
enough pay. We're not having safe working conditions. So it seems like that piece of the analysis is correct. You squeeze people too hard and they will fight back. Where there is oppression, there is resistance. That's a law of nature, of social organization. And that's what we are seeing. And now the question is, well, politically in this country, how do we bring together these different pieces of resistance into one movement so that if you're in the labor movement and you see that there's a gain in the women's movement, you take that as a victory for yourself. You take that as, a, as something that you can resonate with and find solidarity with because you're dealing with a common problem with a common enemy rather than, oh, I'm in my silo over here and they're over there and they can do what they need to do and we'll do what we need to do, but we're separate. Well, yeah, they're separate, but they're also deeply connected. And we have not yet got to a point in this country where the movements that are percolating up around particular questions in the labor movement or the civil rights movement or women's movement, those are not yet connected in, in that sense that I'm talking about. Uh, right. So we haven't reached yet that point where we were in the 1960s and early 1970s, where a victory for one was a victory for all, and everybody understood it. Yeah, well, you know, I went up uh, to Canada when the National Democratic Party took over the province of Ontario and went to the um, a meeting, big meeting of the NDP. And that's what they had there was leaders from the women's movement, from the unions, from the environmental movement. And they were all working together in one party. You would think in this country that those uh, those people, those leaders of those movements would be working together in the Democratic Party to influence it to be as strong as possible to uh, make gains like you're talking about. To what extent has that happened now? I know Bernie Sanders tried to work through the Democratic Party to bring dramatic change. And um, to what extent do you think the Democratic Party is a home for people who want to see the kind of changes you're talking about? I think the Democratic Party these days is a party of capital. It's a party of uh, big business in finance, big business in tech. And it is, unfortunately, I think, it's a home for all, uh, these movements and for these leaders, but it's an inhospitable home right now. It's a home that lets the weather in too much. It's a home that the storms blow through rather than to protect the people who are in it from those storms. But it's something of a structure. It's something of a place where I think, and I talk about it in this book, uh, Class, Race, and Gender, uh, the way we challenge the injuries and uh, divisions of capitalism is by bringing together, by uniting these various elements into a coherent uh, organizational entity within the Democratic Party, kind of a caucus. Now, there is a progressive caucus, and it may be the beginning of such a thing, but I think that what the Democratic Party has to become is a place where there are these organized elements bringing together the different social movements as you were describing that you saw in the NDP in Canada. But that presence inside the party, the, the electoral party, the Democratic Party, has to have outside it extremely powerful and well-rooted social movements. And that's the inside-outside that has to happen where you have an electoral strategy that's grounded in social movements. And what those social movements do is they put forward leadership, people who arise out of those movements, who have a base, have a constituency, have an understanding of what needs to happen. Those movements generate an agenda, and they also generate the capacity to hold elected officials accountable. So those are the elements that I think we don't yet have inside the Democratic Party, but I do think that that's where we ought to be trying to build, is to bring those different movements and the leadership of those movements into one coherent 
let's say, progressive caucus or united caucus that would operate inside the Democratic Party and run candidates as that caucus, run candidates in local elections for Congress, for governors, for state representatives, for national representatives, and in a long, slow process, uh, put together the power that's necessary to be a real force in the electoral arena on behalf of workers and marginalized people. We're a long way from that. Well, I would push back some on your assertion that the Democratic Party is uh, kind of controlled by the corporations or a corporate party. I, certainly there are um, corporate Democrats who are in office who are friendly with capital and business, and that's how they get financed. And But um, those people couldn't win unless the majority of voters voted for them. And, and in the Democratic Party are some real progressive champions. We've talked about Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, there's Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. When you look at somewhere like Ohio, it's like the Democratic Party itself is an arena of struggle where there are progressives who are deeply rooted in the party and pushing for progressive change, pushing for accountability of capital and business. Um, but they're up against kind of a mindset and money uh, on the other side. Ohio, for example, which elects Sherrod Brown as a U.S. senator, also in the last election elected J.D. Vance as a U.S. senator, who is a mm -hmm. right-wing mega Republican uh, Trump uh, supporter. Uh, so you're completely opposite. Um, so... I, I would just, uh, you know, a friendly amendment to your charge about the Democratic Party being a corporate party. I think it's more an arena of struggle where those who are kind of more pro-corporate are engaged often in a, in a struggle for power with progressives. And the more we can put progressive candidates out and fund them, uh, the better chance we are we have to win. Like I that race with J.D. Vance was very close. We could have had a progressive Democrat in that U.S. Senate seat, except for a handful of votes, but we just couldn't get enough to get over the finish line on that one. Well, you know, I think that you're right, that the Democratic Party is an arena of real struggle going on. There's no question about it. And Bernie Sanders was sort of the most important example of that. But it's also Bernie's campaign the most important and significant example of the continuing dominant power of capital inside the Democratic Party, because they did everything they could to tilt the uh, the uh, balance away from Bernie and to undermine his campaign. Uh, certainly in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, the, the national leadership was completely in the bag for Clinton. And Bernie, they just sabotaged him at every point. And nonetheless, he ran a, a very powerful campaign uh, that really sparked a lot of imagination, a lot of energy. And that energy continues. That's that's true. And if we want to look at the at, at J.D. Vance, I think you'll find that the, the Democratic Party nationally didn't put enough resources. They deliberately didn't put resources into that campaign to defeat J.D. Vance because they didn't think that they could do it. They didn't think it was worth the money. Well... The, you know, there's a lot of money in that campaign, and I've heard that attack on the Democratic Party by uh, on 2016 on Bernie Sanders' behalf. But really, fundamentally, Bernie just didn't get the votes. I mean, I I think Bernie's fantastic. I think he's a great addition to the public dialogue. I think he pushes the uh, agendas and the issues that need to be pushed. Um, but at the same time, he just did not win enough votes in the Democratic primary in order to win. And that well, that was that's a matter of convincing the voters. That's not a matter of thumb on the scale by the party crushing him. Well, I think, you know, uh, how many votes you get depends upon what the party does overall, not just your own campaign. We could get into all the nits and grits of that. But I think that the main point you and I, I think, will agree that the place to 
unfold this campaign for a real progressive working class based movement that's both in the social movements and in the political electoral arena is inside the Democratic Party. That's where that, that's where I think we need to go. That third party campaigns uh, aren't really not going to work. I was involved in, in in organizing and building and work uh, went to the founding convention of the Labor Party in this country in twenty in nineteen ninety six that uh, came out of the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union and Tony Mazaki. Well, that didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere because unions were too witted to the Democratic Party. They wouldn't support an independent party. And so we have, uh, you know, lessons to learn out of attempts to build these independent parties. And I think that one of those lessons is that we really do need to build an electoral force inside the Democratic Party that's grounded in social movements. I would agree with that. And I was at the founding of the Green Movement in the United States and was with it and was a vociferous opponent of third party candidates by the Greens. And once they went down the path of running third party candidates, I left um, because I, it's just it's so predictable. If you run a Green candidate, they're not going to win, but they'll make the Republican win. <laughs> they'll divide the, the progressive mm -hmm. uh, moderate vote and let Republicans win. Um, so uh, so we, you're right, we're 100% in agreement. The uh, arena for the struggle is the Democratic Party. And um, what do you see in terms of the 2024 election? We've now got, it looks like a rematch of Biden and Trump. Um, what would be your advice to the Biden campaign on how how can Biden win? I mean, a lot of the white working class went to to Trump. Uh, even some, you know, voters of color are disenchanted with Biden. What do you think the Biden campaign needs to do to win this year? I think it needs to talk about what people really want to hear, which is what are you going to do to really make life better? How are you going to make... Uh, workers more powerful at work? How are you going to deal with issues of racial uh, injustice in the, continuing in this country? How are you going to link these things and find ways to explain how they are um, deeply rooted in a common struggle so that we're all allied in the, in the campaign? I think that the question of, of uh, democracy and when Donald Trump uh, goes around talking about we're all vermin, you know, that uh, he has to uh, deal with, I think we should take him seriously. I think he's a very dangerous uh, fellow. And I think he's uh, uh, means what he says when he wants to come after us and after ordinary people. So, you know, Biden, I don't know what their publicity machine is there, but it's pretty, it seems to me to be pretty lame because they've done a whole lot. You know, they've done, they really have, but they have yeah. not figured out a way yet to get people to understand the significance of what they've actually done uh, in their legislative agenda in the first two years of the, that administration. Uh, so I think that uh, the main point for a campaign is to tell people how you're going to help them and what are the uh, questions that people still need to have resolved and how are you going to do that? And I think that uh, the Biden campaign, uh, that's their task. And, it, you know, a lot of people are boohooing and uh, moaning and carrying on these days that uh, Biden doesn't have a chance and Trump's going to clean up and all that. I don't know that that's true. It's a real fight. Uh, I think that Biden would help himself if he would uh, uh, do something to reign in Israel rather than just say he would like to. Uh, but actually do something about what's going on in Gaza, I think that that would help him. I think it would help him if he would really do something about student debt. Uh, I think it would help him if he would really go after corporate power in this country and say that that's what he's doing and explain how it works. So we'll see what the, what the campaign, how the campaign unfolds. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I actually, uh, as I said, I was not initially a Biden supporter. I was 
more in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the party. But I was delightfully surprised once Biden got in. I think he's the best president of our lifetime. And I'm I'm now a big Biden fan. It, he did so much good so fast. People could not absorb all that he was doing. And um, he's the only one I've seen really go on the offensive with antitrust. But as you say, I, I don't think they're their best um, communication system to communicate what they've done. And I actually, I was at a meeting with the Biden campaign team the other day and suggested what they need to do is have an ambassadors program where they, they turn each of us who want to stop Trump, which is a lot of people, um, and help each of us be our own communications hub and that we're all of us be ambassadors for the campaign and just give us a few talking points, things that he has achieved, he has done, what he's planning to do for the next four years when he's if he's reelected. I think that would go a long way that we can't count on them to do all the communication. So um, we'll see if that idea takes root anywhere. I wanted to turn for a minute to the section in your book where you give advice about racial healing, which I think it's one of the many ways uh, working people are divided is um, and has been, as you say, since Bacon's Rebellion back in Virginia, our uh, pre-U.S. history. Um, your advice to white people about uh, addressing the racial divisions we have. And I, I know you mentioned about whenever we have one of these, unfortunately, way too many horrific episodes of blatant racism with, uh, with killing, um, there's a call for a national racial dialogue. Um, to my mind, we've never had a national conversation about race. I was surprised and disappointed that President Obama didn't really get behind an initiative like that in his eight years as president. But um, I was interested that you gave some advice. You've obviously thought deeply about this question. What is your advice to white people around healing racial divisions? I think there are policy issues, and then there's also attitudinal issues that, that we can talk about. I was very struck by Rich Trumka, who was, uh, until he died not too long ago, the president of the AFL-CIO, the major confederation of all unions in this country, represents something like 12 and a half million people. In 2008, uh, Trumka went to the Steelworkers Convention in, it was in Pittsburgh. And he spoke to the steel workers. And as part of his speech, which you can get on YouTube, uh, he talked about how he was certain that there were people in the audience who were not going to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, who were not going to vote for uh, Barack Obama. This is in 2008, under any circumstances, because he's black. And Trump could just said, I know that you're out here in this audience, these steel workers. And he said, I want to tell you why you're wrong. He says, the history of all race in this country is the history of division of working people to increase the power of the boss. We cannot allow that to continue. We cannot allow racial divisions among working people to divide us to the point where we will turn away from what's in the interests of working people and to the interests of our boss. And that is what racism does. He was very clear and very explicit also about the history that racial uh, divisions in this country have been used as an instrument of social control and control of white workers as well as black. So that's a history that I think is very important to bring out. And that Trumpko did that at a steelworkers convention was, I thought, a very good and very powerful example of how to un undertake that discussion. But then there's another 
element to it that I also talked about in this book. You know, we all and we have coming up on Martin Luther King's birthday again, uh, and we all hear his great speech at the uh, uh, Lincoln Memorial in 1963 uh, that I have so-called I have a dream speech in which he talks very famously about how we should come to a day where people are judged by the not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And uh, I was actually at that uh, rally, that demonstration in Washington that day and heard that speech. And I thought it was a good speech, but it wasn't until way later on that I understood that what he was talking about was not just black people should be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, but white people have nothing but the content of our character, not the color of our skin. The color of our skin brings us nothing, no advantage or no upside or no history that we are the champion garden, guardians of, of civilization. And that, that gives us a standing in our conversations with black people. That's a mistake. And uh, all we have in those racial dialogues is the content of our character. And that character has to be open to the humanity of other people. And it has to be open to a recognition of how racial divisions have arisen in this country, not as a guilt trip, not as a way of saying, oh, I have to, I'm so sorry that, you know, this, that, oh, that black people have been suffering so much and it's my fault, you know, mea culpa. No, that's nothing, that's irrelevant. That's not the point. The point is, unless, of course, you have yourself personally engaged in racial oppression, well, then you do have something to apologize for. Well, most people, that's not true. And most people, white people, should come at this discussion dispassionately with nothing but character, nothing but the desire for honesty to understand how racial oppression has functioned, not only to destroy the lives of African-Americans, but to undermine the well-being and the lives of white people and white workers as well. And that, I think, is part of how we should approach issues of race in this country. I think that's good. And I appreciate you raising it because it can be scary as a white person addressing the issue of race. I mean, a lot of white people are afraid of saying the wrong thing, so they just don't say anything. Um, but I, I think it's important for whites to address the issue of racism, just as it's really important for men to speak out about women's rights and women's right. dignity and equality. So uh I appreciate that. And by the way, for you and for our listeners, I um, just organized a big solutions summit addressing problems in climate, democracy, economic inequality, and health. And there was one of my favorite aspects of it was a, a conversation I facilitated between Milagros Phillips, who does the best work I know on transforming racism, a very compassionate, wise, historically grounded um, agent of transforming race. And the counterpoint was Brad Unishi, who is a former white Christian nationalist. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about his experience, what drew him in to become a white Christian nationalist and how he got his way out. And the exchange between the two of them is so powerful. If you want to see it, it's on, uh, you can go to YouTube, uh, Eleanor LeCain, my channel on YouTube, and it's free. Uh, check out the Democracy Day. Uh, I want to turn to another aspect on your book that I found interesting. You say uh, sometimes, particularly when the Republicans are talking about Medicaid and food stamps, they refer to the welfare state or entitlements. Actually, now I would say they're even including um, Medicare, and not just health aid for the poor, but health for everybody over 65. Um, and that you say, instead of considering it as 
an entitlement, it should be considered part of the social wage. Tell us what you're thinking about and the different framing. I think that the question of wages is a, a very important thing to understand. And coming back to how did Marx help us to understand things, Marx had a very deep understanding about wages that actually originated with Adam Smith, the great champion of capitalism. Adam Smith understood that it's workers who create everything. The entire wealth of nations, that was the name of Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. All that wealth originates in labor. And that wealth is divided into two pieces. It's divided into a part that is returned to workers in the form of wages and a part that is kept by capital in the form of profits. And that was as far as Adam Smith got. So if we understand wages as what is it? See, there's two ways to think about wages. I'm a trained economist. I was a professor of economics for 50 years. Economists in the modern tradition think of wages as a return to productivity. You know, you produce more, you get more in wages. You're more productive, you get a higher wage. You're less productive, you get a lower wage. Adam Smith and Karl Marx, and in my book, I carry this forward, understand wages differently. Wages are what workers get in order to continue to survive and work some more and raise children to replace them when they die. Wages are the means by which, in a capitalist society, workers get a part of what they've already produced for their own use. Every society that has produced more than what the working population needs produces a surplus. A surplus is what is produced beyond what the working population actually needs to survive, given the standard of living of the time. So wages is in the private sector, when you go and your employer pays you wages, or in the public sector, you get a wage for going to work uh, in the transportation department. Those wages are what workers use to go into the market and buy what a part of what they've already produced, which is what they keep their living standards by. Now, if you understand wages as the mechanism of transferring back to workers a part of what they've already made, Medicare is the same thing, but through a government program. Unemployment compensation is the same thing, but through a government program, not through a private wage. That's why I think it's helpful to call Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, unemployment compensation, public education. Those are all things that are social wages in the sense that they are mechanisms or channels by which working people can get back part of what they've already made. So workers get their sustenance both through the private wage and through the social wage. And if you think about it that way, reducing Medicaid is not just taking down an, an entitlement that you know poor people have. No, it's taking back the standard of living. It's reducing the standard of living that working people have for what they've already produced. They get less of it. And I think if we look in this country over the, since 1972, 1973, it's very well known that there's been very great increases in inequality, great increases in inequality of wealth and income. But what has happened is that if you look at the at productivity over that period of time, workers are more and more productive every year. Productivity keeps going up, but wages don't. So what does that mean? That means that workers are producing more, that's the productivity, but they're not getting any more. So if they're producing more but not getting more, where is that more that they're producing going? Well, it's going to capital. And that's the increase in inequality that we see. And well, part of that- market. Hmm? 
look at the stock market. The people well, who yeah, stock you know, it's in the companies. The it's, but it's how many people actually own shares, even through 401ks? You know, it's less than right. half the population in this country that own any shares at all. It's right. something like 90% of all the shares in the stock market are owned by the top 10% of the population. Right. And that leads me to another question I want to ask, and we only have a couple of minutes left here, but uh, you raised an issue which I was so excited to see because I haven't seen very many other people talk about it, but it's the idea that we think of the United States as a middle-class country, but uh, an actual fact, over 60% of Americans belong to the working class. And I would go even further. I would say it's probably 70% of the American people are struggling financially. That, that you know, they they have debt, they they have trouble meeting all their expenses, much less saving for retirement. Talk a little bit just in like two minutes about the the idea we are not a middle class country. If we ever were, we're certainly not now. There's been too much class slippage. Well, we've talked about that earlier in this discussion, that the class is not a question of income. So usually, if we talk about class at all, we talk about a broad middle class, and then there's a fringe of rich and poor at either end. And that way of thinking says that most people are in this middle of the income distribution. Well, I don't think that's a very helpful way to understand class. To me, again, class is a question of power, and we don't have a direct measure of power. You can't look up in the index of power who has what power. To me, the best proxy is occupation. So I went and I looked at uh, the Department of Labor, 700 or 800 different occupational classifications. So if you are a home health care worker, you're a working class person because you don't have a lot of power over the terms and conditions of your work and uh, what you're doing. If you're a doctor, you have some power. If you're a CEO, you have a lot of power. So if I look at the occupations, what I find is that something like 62% of the population, of the working population, don't have a whole, whole lot of power or control over their work. And so that is the working class. Now, if, And that's why I say it's a working class majority country. Uh, now, they aren't all industrial workers. They're also home health care workers. There are people working in call centers. There are people working in driving trucks. They're all manner of working class jobs. And they're by far the majority. The capitalist class is about 2%. And there is a middle class of professional people, of small business owners, of supervisors and managers. That's about 36% of the labor force. Now, it's interesting if you go back and look at... Uh, bequests at death. How many people get uh, an inheritance from their parents? Well, it turns out that uh, about 45 or 50% of the population gets nothing. So that's most of the working class gets nothing, which goes back to my point that wages are what you get in order to just survive and have kids who will go on and on their own to develop a standard of living, whatever they can manage to, to rest from their employers and from the society. So if we're talking about the class structure of this country, it's very important to hold on to this idea of power and that the working class is the majority. And if we understand it as power, it's easier to understand the relationship between class, race, and gender, because race and gender are also questions of power. And right. Well, and you've laid out quite an analysis and set of solutions here. Um, we just have like 30 seconds left. What would you recommend our listeners do? Like what action can we take? I think what we should do is be as active as we can in our local communities and in social movements, support labor movements, support strikes, support worker organizations for recognition, union recognition battles get involved in the struggle for democracy in the way of voter uh, voter suppression, vote, register and vote, right. and participate in the political process in the context of social movements. To me, right. the most important thing is building those movements. 
And so right. I well, think it's not enough gonna... just to go vote. That's great. That's important. But the most important thing is to contribute to the building of social movements. We need to stop there. Well, we absolutely got to vote, particularly this year, 2024, if you want to save America and stop Trump from becoming a dictator, get out there and vote. Uh, that's all the time we have. Michael Zweig, author of Class, Race, and Gender, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me.